Let's bow and pray as we prepare to hear God's Word. Father in heaven, we are in need of your help and your mercy this morning. We thank you for how you've provided for us to have copies of your Word here, translated in our language to read, to benefit from. And we ask by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would work this morning to show us more of your glory and your grace to us in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, what does it mean for God to bless you? We've thought about that a little bit in the, in the, the book of Genesis. When we think about God blessing you. Certainly you can think of material blessings. Those are good blessings. The clothes you have on this morning, the vehicle that you rode here in, what, how old or new it is. It's a blessing to have those things. Material blessings are good things. We can thank God for. We're told not to build our our lives upon them, but we certainly can recognize they come from God. Physical blessings are good blessings. I I trust that you're in good health. If you're not, you shouldn't be here this morning, right? It's kind of our rules these days. But I trust you're in good health, that God gave you the physical blessings to, to be here this morning. Physical blessings are good things we can thank God for. Yeah, the Scriptures emphasize spiritual blessings as being the blessing that you and I most need. Material blessings are going to come and go. We shouldn't presume upon the future. We know that physical blessings eventually will fail unless Christ returns first. Each of us has a day appointed to die. And so we know that spiritual blessings, they're the greatest blessings that help us know God in this life and in the next. We're called to pursue these spiritual blessings to give ourselves to knowing God more. We may often hear this word blessed and think about what God gives to people, which is right, which is correct. God blesses people. But in today's passage in Genesis 14, we see God himself being blessed by this mysterious figure, this king priest. Well, have you considered what does it mean for people to bless God? When God blesses us, he gives us something that we're lacking. We're in need of help. We're in need of wisdom. We're in need of counsel. We're in need of strength physically, spiritually. We're in need of food and shelter. We are in need of God to provide for us. But we know that, that God owns everything. He's the Lord. He's not in need of strength. He's not in need of wisdom. He's not in need of, of counsel from anyone. And so what does it mean for people to bless God, the one who owns all things and lacks nothing? Well, when people bless God, what it means is we are expressing praise to Him. We're blessing His holy name, meaning we're, we're praising His holy name. Blessing God means we're expressing thanks to Him, like we just did as we sang, and like we did when we prayed a prayer of thanksgiving together, led by Pastor Tim. When we praise God, we, or when we bless God, excuse me, we are, are living these lives that are joyful, expressing joy in, in, in Him. And when people bless God, we are living the way we were created to live, to bring God glory. So let's think this morning about God blessing His people and God's people blessing Him as we make our way through Genesis chapter 14. The best way to stay engaged this morning, open up to Genesis chapter 14 in your copy of God's Word. If you need a Bible, grab that Bible right in front of you. If you turn to page 10 in your pew Bible, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 14 this morning. That's our, our main sermon series that we've been in for a while here. We're continuing on this morning. I'm going to read all of Genesis chapter 14 for us as we begin our time here this morning. Genesis 14. 
In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Keterlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Keterlaomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Keterlaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and Ashtoreth Carnaim, the Zuzim and Ham, the Emim and Shava, Kiriatham, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as Elperin on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to Enmishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim. Keterlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. The one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Keterlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet at the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. We've seen in the story of Abram that trials and temptations, they're opportunities either for faith or for fear. We saw in Genesis chapter 12 that Abram started off well. He started walking by faith. He, he followed God when called out of Ur, the land of the Chaldeans, followed God to a, a land that he had not yet seen. But by the end of chapter 12, we see that he gave in to fear. He, he fled when there was a famine and left and went down 
to Egypt, did not consult the God Most High. He fell into sin there as he sought this deceptive plan, saying that his wife was his sister, and found himself in a situation he couldn't get out of. But God was faithful to redeem his wife Sarah and to, to rescue Abram and Sarah, to get them back to the promised land. By the time we get to Genesis 13, we see Abram seems to have learned a lesson from that. He's walking by faith. And when a conflict arose in his family, he gave Lot choice of the land, understanding that God had already promised him the land, and no matter what Lot would choose, that God would be faithful to his promises. And this morning, we're in chapter 14, where we see Abram's faith is tested again, as he stepped out in faith to go to battle and to rescue his nephew, Lot. Well, these chapters uh, 13, 14, as they continue on, story of Abram, they reveal what God was doing inside of Abram growing him in his faith. God had called Abram as his chosen servant. We see God at work in the life of Abram. Now, this story is not just meant to be a story for us to, 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 to consider. Oh, there's a lot of details here. There's a lot of uh, battle stories that are recounted here in Genesis. There's a main idea in this story that helps us understand this morning what it looks like to live the Christian life. And the main idea that I want us to see in Genesis 14 is this. God's people are a blessed people who bless the Lord. God's people are a blessed people who bless the Lord. So let's consider this morning what it means to be blessed by God, what it means to live a life that blesses God. So there's two parts to our outline this morning. If you're taking notes, there's a section there in the back of your bulletin. Uh, the first part in verses 1 through 16. God blesses His people with victory over the world. Verses 1 through 16, God blesses His people with victory over the world. In these first 16 verses, we read about an international conflict involving four eastern kings from outside of Canaan battling against five Canaanite kings from the west in the, in the Dead Sea region. That's the Salt Sea reference there. Now, the kings of the Jordan Valley in the, the east, these foreign kings, uh, they serve Keterlaomer, king of Elam. And we see he's mentioned a lot in this passage. He kind of ran the show in the region. He was the, the leader of the eastern kings listed there in verse 1. Keterlaomer led his group to battle and defeated kings throughout the land. We, we see in these first 16 verses two military crew, uh, campaigns with him and his crew. The first campaign is in verses 1 through 2. He made war with the kings of the west, the king of Sodom with the king of Gomorrah and a few others. These were, these were kings living in the land of Canaan. So this is kind of like the original east coast versus west coast. Got four kings in the east listed in verse 1, waging war against five kings in the west listed in verse 2. And that resulted in the five kings that were defeated serving Keterlaomer for 12 years. Then there's a second campaign where he waged battle with these kings in the west to put down a revolt against him. We see that in verse 4. These kings of the west, they served Keterlaomer for 12 years, but in the 13th year they rebelled. And in verse 5, we see that Keterlaomer wasn't having that. He came in the 14th year to put down the rebellion. So the picture is of this guy 
running the region. He was moving south, raiding, waging war. He was there in the land of, of Abram, pushing further south, southward right there around the land that Abram lived in. And in verse 8, the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and their allies continued the rebellion, and they ended up going to battle against Keterlaomer. So four kings against five kings, and the five lost. All the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah were taken as the victors' spoils. Now, all of these details, they're really pointing to what we see in verse 12. So Moses, the narrator of Genesis, he's recounting all of this really to get to verse 12 to show what happened. We find an important detail there. Abram's nephew Lot was taken captive. Now, two weeks ago, we were in Genesis 13. We saw that Lot foolishly separated from Abram. He moved further east, away from God's blessing. Lot was walking by sight, and he chose for himself a land that looked most appealing to the eyes, and he went to dwell in a tent near Sodom. Now, here in in chapter 14, verse 12, we read he's now actually dwelling in Sodom. He's not just living in a tent near there. He went to live in this city that was described in chapter 13 as full of wicked men, a place that did not honor God. In other words, he was giving himself over to sin, living in the captivity of sin, and now he's actually taken captive by a foreign king, and he's as good as dead. He's taken off from here, so he's in a situation he can't get himself out of. Now, he, he walked by sight, and look how quickly it all withered away. This land that looked good, this land that seemed desirable to the eyes, led him to captivity. To slavery. So the picture is painted. Keterlamer was dominant. He was a force to be reckoned with. And he took Abraham's, Abram's nephew Lot as a slave. He was conquering the land that Abram lived in, the land that Abram was promised. Who would step up and stop this guy? Well, in verse 13, Abram. Abram rallies his men for battle. No, no wait a minute. Abram's the guy that when he faced the, the test, the trial of famine, he got out of Dodge. He left. He, he went down to, to Egypt. He sought resources from a, a foreign co- country that, that worshipped a false god. Now we see him ready to step up and take on a king that was defeating everyone. Now, now Abram was not a soldier by trade. We have no reason to think he would know exactly what he was doing. Now, God provided for him. We see 318 trained men, where whoever these men, wherever they came from, it might have been the men that he gained there coming out of Egypt, but we see God provided for him there, and there were, there were allies listed here in the Amorites in verse 13, but we don't have any reason to think that Abram was this mighty kind of warlord who could step up and defeat this king that ran the region. In other words, what this is, it's a step of courage that was produced by faith. God had provided him with trained men, God had given him allies, and God had promised him this land, and Abram did what was right to step up and rescue his nephew. Now, also consider that Abram has to survive this in order for an heir to come from him. He was without child. If he gets killed in this battle, where is, is this child that's promised that, that through Abram, the nations would be blessed? Where is this going to come from? Clearly, he was trusting God. That's what the original audience would have heard as Moses, the narrator, was recounting to them this history. God was doing something in Abram, and by God's grace, he was stepping out to walk by faith. Now, walking by faith doesn't mean that you have a haphazard plan. 
Abram was shrewd about this. Uh, We see that he attacked by night. He defeated these four kings and chased them out of the land by dividing them and attacking at night. And in verse 16, the, the victory is finished. He rescued Lot and brought back all the possessions. And most importantly, he brought back Lot. By the power of God, Abram scored a victory. He delivered Lot, the women, and and the people. Now, this is the first of of many battle scenes recorded throughout the pages of the Old Testament. And for such a tremendous military victory, all we receive here in this account are some brief details about the victory. I mean, this is a tremendous victory, evidence of, of God's power. And even though there aren't many details here about this victory, make no mistake, this was a big deal. Untrained Abram taking out the dominant conqueror of the region. This was a victory by God's power and according to His promise. We might be familiar with David and Goliath and see that as a tremendous victory of God, but this victory right here, Abram, with the kings of the region, stands out as a testimony and evidence of God's power and faithfulness to Abram. Now, God, He he gave Abram victory as His chosen servant. Abram was the one that God chose to bless. And he gave him victory in the promised land over foreign enemies. Think about how that would have encouraged God's people in the nation of Israel. Again, we think the original audience most likely was the wandering people of God, wandering in the wilderness, the nation of Israel. As they looked back on this victory with Abram, their ancestor, the nation of Israel could trust God to give them victory over their enemies. This is a story of God's redemption. Now, twice in verse 16, we read the phrase, brought back. That's redemption language. God sent His chosen servant to pursue and rescue Lot to redeem what was being held captive. You see, Lot was was there with Abram back in Genesis chapter 12, when, when, call, when God called Abram to, to go out from his country and follow the Lord to a, a promised land, Lot went in obedience to it. And the way it's even described in Genesis chapter 12, we noted it showed Lot's obedience as well. Lot stepped out in faith. He started off well, but then he wandered away, lured by the sight of fertile land. Lured by the promises of this world of a a better life, he wandered away from blessing, away from the presence of God. He found himself captive to sin as a result of his actions, and God was gracious and sent Abram to rescue and to redeem Lot. Now, sometimes we may read these Old Testament battle accounts as Christians, and they may seem odd to us. Wow, there's a lot of a lot of battles, a lot of fighting going on there. That might be hard for us to understand here as Christians living in the church. However, there's a lot of significance in this chapter for us as God's new covenant people in the church. You see, in the age of the church, the battles we fight are not physical. As Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 tells us, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but rather we are in a spiritual battle, a battle for the souls of people, a battle not fought with physical weapons, but with the spiritual weapons of God's Word and prayer. We're in a battle of redemption, a battle to redeem a people for God from among the nations. And this redemption of Lot 
through God's chosen servant Abram, shows a pattern of redemption that ultimately is seen in God's redemption of the nations through His chosen servant Jesus, the chosen one of God, the the suffering servant who came to redeem and to save. As Christians, we, we, we marvel in the glory of Jesus Christ. We sang about that this morning, I will glory in my Redeemer. We're glorying in the one who's already scored a victory through his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead. And so we recognize this morning as Christians, we are not fighting a spiritual battle for victory. You've heard me say this before, but rather we fight from victory, from the victory of Jesus Christ, a victory that is sure. Our future is not up for grabs. The future of the church is not up for grabs. You might read headlines each week in the news that get you concerned, and and rightly so, wondering what challenges churches might face. It's discouraging to read and to hear and to receive emails about what's going on in Afghanistan right now, to to have pastor friends who, who know pastors that are there, who are in hiding right now as they're being hunted down by the Taliban. That's, that's just discouraging, disappointing to read, but at the same time, we understand the future of the church is not up for grabs. The victory has already been secured. Jesus has promised that He will build His church. The gates of hell will try to prevail, but they will not be successful. The Word of the Lord will not return void to Him. Rather, it will accomplish the purposes He has set before it. And so as Christians, we have a confidence. It's called faith. The victory has already been won. It's already been secured. Any moment of anxiety, any moment of concern, any moment of fear can be matched with this truth. Jesus Christ is Lord, risen from the dead, reigning right now, promised to return one day, hopefully really soon. I I don't want to die. I want Christ to return first. Death is a terrible thing. I want Jesus to come back. We meet here on Sunday mornings looking forward. This isn't all that there is. This is a taste of what is yet to come. And in Jesus Christ, we have been given victory over the world. That's the blessing we proclaim. So thank Him for your material blessings. The book of Ecclesiastes, we went through that. It taught us don't presume upon God's blessings. Enjoy His daily gifts. Enjoy the things He's given you. But look forward to that blessing which is yet to come. Knowing God fully. We know it in part now. We know God in part now, meaning that we're still living in this body of death. But one day, we will be freed from this body of death. Victory is certain in Jesus. And the victory we've been given as a church is a victory over the world. You see, our victory is found in the death of Jesus Jesus Christ on the cross in paying for sin. And His glorious resurrection from the dead. That as Christ conquered sin and death, and Satan himself, we have victory. For all who repent of their sin against God and put their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, you will be rescued from the captivity of sin, a captivity you can't possibly get yourself out of. You see, those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, we've been redeemed. We've been brought back to God, the God who created us. We've been freed to walk in a victory that we did not accomplish ourselves. And for those who put their faith in Jesus, we've been blessed with victory. Victory in Christ over the power of sin. Victory in Christ over the power of death. Victory in Christ over the power of Satan. And therefore, we can say with the Apostle Paul, who said in 1 Corinthians 15, 57, but thanks be to God 
who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The church is God's chosen people and Christ has been given victory over the world. It's the greatest blessing, a blessing we could not have accomplished on our own. And therefore, we bless His holy name. In the second part of Genesis 14 and verses 17 through 24, I want us to think about what it looks like for God's people to bless Him. Verses 17 through 24, here's the second part of our outline. God's people bless Him by living for His glory. God's people bless Him by living for His glory. Maybe you've heard it said that temptation often comes after victory. That's what we see here in the story of Abram. After this it's amazing victory, two kings came out to meet Abram, the king of Sodom, and this mysterious figure, Melchizedek, the king of Salem. And they have two very different responses to Abram and this amazing victory. First, in verse 18, we see the response of Melchizedek, king of Salem. And we learn a little bit about who he is here in this chapter. He was a king, so the king of Salem, and then in parentheses at the end of verse 18, he was a priest, a priest of God most high. A priest is chosen by God to represent God's people to God. That's what a priest does. We thought earlier, even Johnny mentioned prophet, priest, and king, these three offices. Uh, Prophets would represent God to his people. They bring a word from God to people. A priest would represent God's people to God, serving as a mediator, offering up sacrifices, offering up prayers. He was a mediator between God and, and man. This is the first person referred to as a priest in the Bible. And what's interesting is Melchizedek is a king and a priest. It's very odd in the Old Testament. You couldn't be a priest and a king. You were either of the tribe of Levi and you were a priest or you were a a king. You couldn't serve both offices. We'll get back to that in a little bit. But the name Melchizedek means this, king of righteousness. And his title, king of Salem, those same consonants there in Salem, S L. In the Hebrew, that would point to shalom. This title pictures peace. He's the king of Salem. He's the king of of peace. Now, Salem is likely, can't be certain, but it's likely an ancient name for Jerusalem. There's a good chance that this is the king of Jerusalem or Jerusalem. Now, there isn't much known about him. The important details we gather here is that he was a priest king connected to most likely Jerusalem and associated with righteousness and peace. Now, we're going to come back to consider a little bit more about Melchizedek later, but for now, let's just consider what we see here in Genesis 14 and verses 18 through 20. First, he brought out bread and and wine to Abram. Bread and wine was was royal fare. Now, some scholars will look here and they'll they'll see some point to the ordinances. I'm not sure that's exactly what's going on here. I I think simply bread and wine was royal fare. A, A king giving bread and wine to Abram was a gesture of generosity. Uh, Abram was on this kind of travel back with all of these possessions, and we see Melchizedek providing for him during his trip back home. But, but then most importantly, Melchizedek's response is a blessing. Look at verse 19. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So Melchizedek was a priest of God most high, in Hebrew, that name is El Elyon. El was a common Hebrew term 
for God. El Elyon means most high. So El Elyon was a common title of God, the God most high, used by patriarchs in Genesis. So Melchizedek, he believed in one God. He believed in the God most high. He was not a relative of, of, of Abram, but he believed in the same God as Abram, the one true God amongst the many false gods. You see, Abram and Melchizedek worshipped the same God. They both worshipped the God most high, the one who not only created heaven and earth, but was the possessor of heaven and earth, the God who chose Abram and gave him promises. That's who Melchizedek worshipped. It's, it's, it's interesting. Here was one residing in the land of Canaan, not related to Abram, who had come to know the one true God and was serving him. We, we don't know if he was the only one at that time, but he's the only worshiper of God outside of Abram's family that's written of up to this point. And Melchizedek understood that Abram's victory was due to the God Most High delivering Abram's enemy into his hand. He didn't come and pat Abram on the back and say, wow, that was amazing. How did you figure that out? How did you do that? No, he gave glory to the God Most High. He was very clear. Hey, the God I worship, that's Abram's God, and God blessed him and gave him victory over the kings of the world. God was faithful in showing his power to Abram. This blessing from Melchizedek, it affirmed God's favor to Abram. In verse 20, Melchizedek blessing God Most High was an act of giving praise and glory to God for this amazing victory. At the end of verse 20, Abram recognized Melchizedek. He recognized him as a priest of his God, and he paid a tithe to him, giving a, him a tenth of the possessions that he was carrying back from battle. Now, now Abram, giving this tithe, it demonstrated that he affirmed the words of Melchizedek to be true, and he validated Melchizedek's priesthood. He's submitting himself, recognizing Melchizedek as someone greater than him. Now, now keep in mind, again, original audience here. Abram, this was the man. This was God's chosen one. They existed. The wandering nation of Israel in the wilderness existed because of Abram. And here's Abram bowing to someone else. That would have stood out. Again, we'll get to that in just a moment. But Abram, this act of, of paying a tithe, it, it was him affirming the priesthood of Melchizedek. Now, consider the different response of the king of Sodom. The king of Salem came with a blessing, but the king of Sodom came with a bargain, a kind of a self-serving bargain. In verse 21, we find a very different tone. Melchizedek brought honor and, and blessing. The king of Sodom, on the other hand, he came to get what he wanted. In verse 21, we read, he said, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. He was trying to stake a bargain. All right, I'll keep the people. You kind of keep the goods. That should satisfy both of us. Now consider this, the difference. Melchizedek, he brought out bread and wine. King of Sodom brought out nothing. Not even a thank you for rescuing us. Hey, thank you for rescuing us from Keterlaim or we couldn't have got out of that. Thanks, Abram, we really appreciate that. No, he was interested in what he could get. Now again, we, we saw in the last chapter of Genesis, in Genesis 13, that Sodom was a, a, a wicked place. We saw in Genesis 13, it was filled with men who were great sinners against the Lord. So it's no surprise that the king of Sodom is offering a deal that would benefit himself. Now, this was an opportunity, though, for the king of Sodom to recognize the power and the might of Abram's God. This was a chance for the king of Sodom 
to pay respect and give glory to the God Most High. That's what Melchizedek did. He did what was right. The king of Sodom had an opportunity to worship and to serve the one true God here, but he was more concerned with possessions. He was more concerned with his present life. This was an opportunity for him to repent of his sin against God, but he was more concerned with possessions of this world than he was with the possessor of heaven and earth. You know, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you haven't put your faith in Jesus, I am so glad that you're here. You are, you are welcome to be here every Sunday morning. We think coming to church is a wonderful place. It's the best place for you to come to learn more about who God is and what He's done in Jesus. And we want you to know, to be clear on what God's Word says, and what it says you need most is forgiveness for your sins against God. You see, the testimony that each member of this church had when we were baptized is this. We've been forgiven of our sins through faith in Jesus Christ, united to Jesus, His death and resurrection, forgiven of our sins by God's grace when we repented and believed in Him. Our testimony is not that we were good enough, we figured out a a way to improve our own lives. Our testimony is we've been forgiven by the grace of God. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I couldn't help but think, it's kind of like this opportunity the king of Sodom had. You have an opportunity here this morning to hear who God is, to hear what He's done in Jesus, to hear what, what is needed in your life, to repent of your sin today and put your faith in Jesus Christ. Just like the king of Sodom, the gift is right in front of you. It's right here. There's no more news you, you need to hear. What you're hearing this morning is what you need to know. And it is urgent that you would repent and put your faith in Jesus Christ Today, I wonder how much longer will you continue on your life without God? The king of Sodom wasn't interested in the God most high. He was interested in his present life. I would urge you, don't give your life today to leaving here and considering more about this present world. The gift is right here in front of you. And if you want to learn more about what it means to put your faith in Jesus Christ today, come and see one of our pastors at the door afterwards. Talk to a member who brought you this morning. If you're a kid, talk to mom and dad later. Talk to them about what it would look like to put your faith in Jesus. I'll be at the top of the ramp afterwards. It's the most important decision you could make. Well, Abram would have nothing to do with this offer from the king of of Sodom. In verse 22, here's his response. I've lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of, of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap, or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre take their share. Now think about this, this offer from the king of Sodom, it would mean that Abram would have got richer. It's a lot of possessions. All he had to say was, okay, you take the people, I'll take the possessions. It would have been an immediate gratification seemingly, right? So the king of Sodom was tempting Abram to use this victory for personal gain. But Abram refused. This was temptation. It was a sort of test. If he didn't make the right decision right then, he might have won the battle, but he would have come away with a loss, a loss of an opportunity to bless God and to give Him glory. And so Abram's response here is one of faith. He refused to take anything from the king of Sodom. Why? Well, he cared more about God's glory. 
He refused to keep anything, not even a thread or sandal strap. And his reasoning at the end of verse 23 was that he did not want the king of Sodom to get the glory. God most high is worthy of glory. And Abram didn't want to give any opportunity to this pagan king to somehow get glory. Again, the point of this narrative in Genesis 14 is to display the faith of Abram. It was Abram's faith in God that led him through this temptation. If Abram was walking by sight, well, to take the possessions that are right there in front of you, you can benefit from these. Don't pass up such a great deal. You worked hard for that. You put your life on the line. You battled hard for it. You deserve it, Abram. Just take it. But Abram was walking by faith. And blessings from the God Most High was what he held to, not possessions from this passing world. Abram, you see, he knew the one who possessed heaven and earth, all that is in it. And the possessions of the spoils of war faded when compared to the one who possessed all things. The logic here in this temptation is this. My God is the possessor of heaven and earth. He owns everything. Therefore, what do I need from you? What can you give me? What do you have to offer to me? You see, when you understand that your God possesses everything, that He is the Lord, the God Most High, none above Him, that's when temptation starts to fade. You see, Abram needed nothing from the kings of this world because he served the king who created the world and possessed it. He served the God Most High. Any possessions that Abram had, he wanted to be seen as clearly coming from the one who is the possessor of heaven and earth. His reward would not be seen as coming from a pagan king, but from the God most high. In other words, after battle, he was blessing God and giving God the glory. As we look through the story of Abraham, we've defined walking by faith as clinging to God and His promises. So, So if as Christians we are to turn away from the fading promises of this world, then we need to look to the one who possesses all things. Have you considered that? For, for our battle and temptation this week, we can expect we will all face temptation. You might be facing it right now. Uh, you certainly will face it later today. We are tempted in so many ways at so many different times. Have you considered, while we certainly say no to temptation, that we have to say yes to God? Uh, saying no only lasts for so long. And what empowered Abram, I think, in this moment It was his faith in God. He was looking to the possessor of all things, and therefore these possessions just didn't match up with the one who was full of glory. You see, if as Christians we are to turn away from the fading promises of the world, we must look to God, the one who possesses all things, the one who possesses heaven and and earth. We come to church on Sunday mornings to look to God. We encourage you to spend time in the Word and prayer during the week so you can look to God more and more. Fix your eyes upon Him to to meditate on the truth of His Word. See, this, this view of God and the riches of His glory is the weapon we must wield when tempted. If we are to turn from sin, we must look to God, the Creator and the Possessor of all things. And while the narrative of Genesis 14, it served to display the faith of Abram, you know, it plays an even greater role in the whole of Scripture. 
you, know, you may have read this passage this past week. We, we list whatever passage is next that we plan to preach next. We list it in the back of the bulletin. You may have read it this past week and thought, okay, wow, like this is a lot of interesting details. I'm sure there's something here I need to get, something I want to learn about, about Abram. And at initial glance, it may have even seemed a little obscure. I'll tell you that several commentaries I looked at this past week did not offer much on Genesis 14. Some of them, even concise ones, skipped over it, kind of just went to 15 and on. So it's like, okay. Uh, I plan to preach this for a reason. Let's figure out why that is. All right, Genesis chapter 14. Uh, but we see here something really important that helps us put our Bibles together, Old Testament and New Testament. We see here that King David in Psalm 110 that we heard read this morning, the writer of Hebrews, they saw something significant here. It wasn't an obscure, obscure chapter. It may not seem like the most important or exciting chapter in the book of Genesis, but there's something here that we don't need to miss. King David in the Old Testament, writer of Hebrews in the New Testament, looked back, saw something significant here. So let's consider a little bit more about Melchizedek as we close. He shows up two more times in the Bible. We heard it read this morning, Psalm 110, Hebrews 7. I would encourage you to go back, look at both of those passages. We heard them read this morning, but look at both of those later on. In Psalm 110, almost a thousand years later in the Old Testament after Abram, King David wrote about Melchizedek in Psalm 110. Now, King David, he was the king who reigned in, in what city? The king of Jerusalem. He looked back on Melchizedek, the ancient king of Salem, or Jerusalem, and he sang this psalm of a greater Melchizedek who would come. Now, David was speaking in the Holy Spirit here in the psalm. That's why we have it recorded for us in the pages of the Bible. In Psalm 110, we heard read this morning, God promised a king who would rule with a scepter, and then in verse 4 of Psalm 110, the hope of a priest who would last forever in the order of Melchizedek. David saw God making an oath to David's Lord to make him a priest after the order of this guy in Genesis 14, Melchizedek. Now Psalm 110, it's important to know, it's a messianic psalm. It's about the promised Messiah. It's, it's often quoted. In fact, the, the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. What we see here is referred to as a typology. Throughout the Old Testament, there are, are types. And types are figures or symbols. They can be in people, places, events, institutions that prefigure what God would do in Christ. When studying typology this week, it's important to know it helps us put our Old Testament and New Testament together. I heard typology pictured like this. Prophecy is prediction in words. Typology is prediction in picture. So the Old Testament contains prophecy. You all were in the Minor Prophets this summer while I was on sabbatical. It contains prophecy, looks forward to what God would do. And the Old Testament contains typology that points forward to what God would do in Christ. In other words, Melchizedek is a prediction in the picture of a person. He was a type pointing forward to what God would do in Christ. So think about it, Melchizedek, the king of Jerusalem, the king of righteousness, and the king of priests, the one whose priesthood would last forever in Psalm 110. Who else in Scripture could we call the king of righteousness? Who else in Scripture could we call the king of peace? Who else in Scripture fulfilled the office of king and priest? Jesus Christ, the righteous one, perfect in all his ways, fully God and fully man, and therefore the perfect 
king of righteousness. And he's the king of peace. The one whose, whose rule brings peace between God and man. And in the age to come, perfect peace on all the earth. You see, Psalm 110 looked forward to another priest to come. Not one in the order of Aaron or the Levitical priesthood, but one in the order of Melchizedek, who would be king and priest. God was going to bring someone like Melchizedek, whose priesthood would last forever. Well, who would come to reign as king and be priest forever? Jesus. In the New Testament, Hebrews 7, which we heard read again, it's a whole chapter of commentary on Psalm 110, verse 4 where the writer of Hebrews connects Melchizedek to Jesus Christ. Again, a good passage to go check out later today or in community groups to take a look at that together. But the writer of Hebrews looked back on Genesis 14 and saw something important there. He saw a passage that pointed to Jesus. Hebrews 4-7 through 7 points to Jesus as our high priest. The author of Hebrews uses Genesis 14 and Psalm 110 to show that Jesus is our king and priest like Melchizedek. Well, just like the people of the Old Covenant needed a priest, the people of the New Covenant, we were in need of a priest. But the New Covenant would be far more glorious and superior than the Old Covenant. See, the priest that we have in, in Jesus, the one who came in the order of Melchizedek, Jesus was not stopped by death, but rather His ministry was to die. His ministry was to die as the perfect sacrifice, the only one qualified to be a substitute and to pay the penalty for our sins once and for all. You see, Jesus came as a king to reign and to rule, but He came also as a priest to atone for sin by laying down His life as the perfect sacrifice. Three days later, God raised Him from the dead to reign as king and to minister as priest forever. All who turn to Him, who repent of their sin and put their faith in Jesus, are blessed by the God Most High with victory over the world, victory over sin and Satan and death. All who turn to Him receive the riches of the kindness of His grace. All who turn to Him are blessed. You see, Jesus fulfilled what was foreshadowed in Melchizedek. He reigns as King forever and ministers as priest forever. That's good news for us here this morning. We serve a risen and reigning Savior. He rules over us. We are His people. We find our life and peace in His rule, and He ministers to us this morning. He intercedes on our behalf. We pray in the name of Jesus. We approach the throne of God the Father through the name of the Son, Jesus Christ. He is our hope. He is our life. He is our peace. He is our righteousness. He is the one in whom we are blessed, and He is the one whom we bless and praise and give God glory for what He's done for us in Jesus. You see, Jesus is the chosen servant of God. God the Son come down to earth to deliver us from our captivity, to deliver us from a captivity we couldn't free ourselves from, to give us victory over the world, and to be our high priest forever. And those who trust in Him are blessed, blessed with salvation, with eternal life with God. And those who trust in Jesus, bless the Lord and live their lives for His glory. As we close and 
sing a song praising God for what He's done in Jesus, we also prepare to come and to remember Jesus here at the table as we receive the Lord's Supper and remember Jesus' ministry to us through His blood shed for us and His body given for us, and we look forward to His return. Let's bow now and pray and praise God.